Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. And part of it is because I think that take on how do we effectively address climate change and reduce emissions globally, it finally, fundamentally misunderstands like the system dynamics at play and specifically how do you get system change in a complex system like mm-hmm. our society. Uh, and you need typically, like if you're looking at complex systems and how you shift their outputs, yep. um, you're not just looking at the top top-down approach no. with really large, really um, slow-moving um, institutions. And we've already seen, like it's demonstrated over the last 30 years, like our political leaders are really poor at addressing this problem at the speed that's required or at the level that's required. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, the best digital agency on the planet Earth. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. We are also sponsored by Creole, who are now the official drink of Humans of Purpose. As loyal Humans of Purpose listeners, you can enjoy a 15% discount on their tasty range of healthy sodas. Just hit the link in our show notes or head to creole.com.au, click shop and enter discount code Humans of Purpose on checkout. Now, in an exciting and somewhat experimental development, I've created a Humans of Purpose WhatsApp group for anyone who wants an easy way to chat with fellow Humans of Purpose listeners about any of our episodes, guests, community, and more. I'll be there too, so you can give me your direct feedback about the show, tell me what you're liking and not liking as much, and what you want to see more of in the future. In turn, I can give you a bit more context to my thoughts about each episode, share early episode releases with you, and much, much more. A few key things to keep in mind if you wish to join and participate in the group, and these will be posted in the actual WhatsApp group, and they might evolve from time to time. This is a forum for friendly, inspired, and productive conversation in the spirit of Humans of Purpose about a show that really aims to focus on the positives, so just a few guardrails here. No rude, insulting, or discriminatory behavior or negative comments directed toward anyone. Any forms of the above will result in a fast group ban. Disagreement in the group should be by way of constructive yes and variety. It's not a place to shut down those you don't agree with. No politics or promotion of any political causes or platforms of any kind, and no discussion of global politics unless there's a direct link to a Humans of Purpose guest or topic. Finally, no promotion of yourself, your products, services, or organization, and certainly no self-pitches to appear on Humans of Purpose. The drill for promotional opportunities, as you know, is to hit the separate link in our show notes or just to email me and the team at hello at humansofpurpose.com. Things you may want to do or say in the group. You could say things you enjoyed about a particular episode and guest and why. You could express your own view about a topic raised during one of our episodes. You could give feedback on the direction you'd like the show to take in future and good topics, organizations or people to cover. You might share content that's relevant to our show, previous episodes, guests, themes or more. You might also want to share ideas, people or organizations, not your own, that inspire you or others to be a better human. So I've popped a link in the show notes to that WhatsApp group, and you can just click that from your phone or computer and join in on the action. A guest on the pod this week is Lily Dempster. Lily is the founder and CEO of One Small Step. One Small Step is an awesome app I stumbled upon and started using on my personal journey to reducing my carbon footprint. 
It helps me identify purchase, consumption, or behavioral decisions that I can take, alter, or fine-tune, and the resulting benefits to the planet from doing so. It works really well at influencing behavior change and creating a positive community to drive change because it leverages behavioral science for good. Lily and I will talk more about this on the show today. Lily was a great guest to have on the show. She's whip smart, has a very fast mind, so at times I struggle to keep up with her. As a user of her app, I'd highly recommend it, but don't let me convince you. Have a listen to what Lily has to say in the episode and make your own choice. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lily as much as I did. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Lily at the Commons in Cremorne. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I um, I stumbled across your app um, recently while, while I was sort of on one of my rants about how I'm going to reduce my carbon emissions for the year. So to put a name to the face and to see all the great work you're doing on the space is very exciting for me. Thanks so much, Mike. It is a pleasure. So look, let's do our usual um, Humans of Purpose um, starting point. And that's just a bit of a, a deep dive into how you got started, um, what were you doing before and how did you come up with the idea and what has your journey been towards One Small Step? Yeah, sure. So uh, how I got started was, I, I like this is the long version. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a family where uh, it was really important to think about how you'd be contributing to society. And that was sort of like the value set I was raised with. And so I was studying law at ANU um, in my undergrad and I'd done that because I was really interested in social justice. But pretty soon into my law degree, I was pretty disillusioned with law as a practice. Oh, you've had a kindred spirit here. <laughs> Not to dog lawyers. Obviously, there's tons of lawyers that do amazing things in the world. But I was struggling in degree in terms of my sense of purpose. Uh, and then I think I watched An Inconvenient Truth, like second year uni. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, climate change is the biggest social justice issue of our entire generation. Yep. You know about how inequitable the Im- impacts are, both intergenerationally and then also in terms of the poorest people um, who are the least responsible for causing the problem are the ones that suffer the most from its impacts. Uh, and it's a really complex, wicked problem. And so I was sort of obsessed from then onwards, structured my arts law, so I majored in political science, structured my degree around looking at climate change mitigation, went and did an internship in Congress and looked at the EPA's greenhouse gas regulations in 2011. I worked as a, uh, a campaigner for Get Up while I was at uni um, and I worked as a clerk over summer for the Environmental Defender's Office. So I sort of was pretty directed on environmental advocacy mm-hmm. at an early age. And then I went into government for two years. Again, I was kind of looking at like top-down um, political campaigning on climate change mitigation. I was like, what better way to be effective than like go on the inside first and learn uh, all the tricks the delusions and we the had systems. in the early stages of that career. <laughs> but it was it was really useful, you know. So I, I went through the um, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet grad program. Well, that's a good department to go through. Yeah, it was an, under three prime ministers in two years, which was which was interesting. Wow. Um, but I was in a, a segment of of the department where it had been set up to look like. Uh, a a strategy consulting unit in the UK and that was an offshoot of that was the behavioural insights team in the UK. So I actually got to meet David Halpern briefly through like a workshop. I love the David Halpern. Yeah. And now we're speaking the same language. I knew we'd connect on Nudge but I just wasn't (laughs) sure which parts of the BI and the Nudge space. Yeah. And so I'd kind of gotten obsessed through that um, intersection where we were looking, you know, I was on a bunch of different task forces. We weren't really looking at um, behavioural economics as part of policy interventions at that point. That was before the beta team was set up in PM&C. But it it really launched me into looking at behavioural economics. I studied microeconomics at uni while I was there uh, and was already kind of obsessed with psychology and, yeah, so just kind of read everything that I could about cognitive science and behavioural economics because I recognised its potential applications to climate change mitigation. 
Then I went back to working at GetUp after PMNC, started running sort of major consumer campaigns for them, getting people to switch to electricity retailers online. Um, so consumer campaigns that help people reduce their their emissions and also grow the market share of low-carbon businesses. And that's where it sort of really opened up for me where I kind of went, okay, there's like because of my multidisciplinary background, I was like there's this emerging body of research on how do we get people to cost and time effectively adopt pro-environmental behaviours. Yep. Uh, and it was a really underutilised kind of set of tools in the environmental movement. You know, there's a big focus on political campaigning, top-down reform. Obviously all of that is essential, um, but working at the political level, at the federal level, you know, I was really frustrated with the lack of progress and what I saw as some intransigence just in the system that we had around, you know, how difficult it was to even get, you know, the Labor Party to look at fossil fuel subsidies, for example. Yep. And, uh, you know, this this idea that I had, it sort of came from seeing the carbon impact of the consumer campaigns I was running, recognising how significant an impact you can have when you have high emissions um, you know, footprints from people in wealthy countries like Australia, the US, the UK, parts of Europe. Um, it's it's a real misconception that we don't have anything to contribute because when your unit of analysis goes from one person to even a couple of tens of thousand, um, you know, you can very quickly accelerate the growth of circular economy or zero carbon businesses when mm-hmm. you're switching your custom to those businesses. And also you have direct emissions impact in terms of, you know, your energy usage choices, um, the fuel you generate, the waste you generate, your consumption, the embodied emissions and all the stuff you buy. So it was about creating a, a user interface that took all of that behavioural economics research uh, and tested it uh, with an audience that I already knew, which was people who cared about climate change and sustainability to see what kind of impact we could have in terms of emission reductions. That's really amazing story. I, I think let's take a little step back and talk a little bit about um, behavioural economics and yeah. the idea of influencing <laughs> um, personal decision making within a context. Because I think if you can just spell out some of those um, characteristics or some of the philosophy behind that, why that's a useful tool for this sort of change that you're trying to um, seek in the yeah, climate sure. area, that would be interesting. So I think like, uh, you know, at a classical level, behavioural economics just totally can I say the S word? Can I swear on this you can podcast? Say whatever you like, Lily. Well, it, it shits on the concept of the rational actor. Like that's not accurate. <laughs> Damn it! We have to mark this episode explicit. <laughs> this is terrible. Um, and you know, people—the way we make decisions as human beings—you know, there are patterns there that are unconscious. There's a bunch of what's called heuristics, so ways that our uh, our brain makes decisions, and it's not at the conscious level, and they're sort of quick shortcuts. And we're really influenced by our environment. We're really influenced by our social circle, much more so than we realise. And behavioural economics basically is a form of economics but also a kind of a mix of psychology where you're looking at communications and design and how you frame information and how you frame environments as well and what impact that has on people's behaviours. And there's been a whole um, range of interesting applications like getting more people to um, consider organ donation uh, upon death, um, getting people to pay their parking fines on time, um, getting people to switch to more um, carbon uh, conscious uh, energy providers. Yeah. Are, there, are, are these all things you've sort of spent time thinking about? A lot of time. And I mean, I think like also you have the unethical side of behavioural economics, which we've yeah. seen obviously with the growth of these massive monolithic social media companies. Facebook. And the kind of tunnel vision you can get when you're on the infinite scroll, oh. um, which is the same as a poker machine. And you mm. can really, you know, so these, these, these tools at a sophisticated and massive level have been used in some really... Um, damaging, potentially damaging ways mm. for society. 
But I think with transparency and buy-in and consent of a user base, it's actually just about people really need structured systems and support and tools if yeah. they want to change their behavior kind of in any area, whether it's looking at your diet or fitness um, you know, or wanting to set up a specific habit, um, you know, start drumming, whatever. Uh, and for us, it's there's a wide array of pro-environmental behaviours that we know our users really want to take up, but knowing which ones to focus on, which ones have impact, and just how to get set up in a way that doesn't add to people's already massive cognitive load. Like how do we make it easy for people? So a lot of it is actually about just removing decision-making friction mm. um, and helping people craft their environments in ways that cue the behaviours that they want to take up. And I think this is very different to we should make a distinction between government policy nudges and private sector or not-for-profit nudges where the people who are choosing to download your app presumably are conscious that they want to be nudged in a certain way. Yeah, we're really transparent about the strategies we use and happily that also doesn't reduce their effectiveness. And like this, you know, where we'd like to get to versus where we're at, like we've demonstrated the tools, like the, what the app is effective in supporting people to reduce their emissions. But just to be clear, behaviour change is really hard. Oh yeah, it's and the like, hardest. If we just had like a magic bullet where we're like, okay, we manipulated everybody into reducing their emissions and it was mm. all perfect, like... Uh, people are not that easy to manipulate, unfortunately. So um, and that's not, that's also, that's not what we're trying to do. We're really just trying to empower people to, to make an impact on climate change, contribute to the solutions. Um, we can go into like why I think working at an individual level is a really important component of climate yep. change mitigation. Let's, let's maybe talk about that because one argument that comes up a lot, particularly for my friends who are more on the right and that more kind of capitalist um, viewpoint, they would say to me, what's the point of us as individuals doing anything in Australia? We're less than 1% of global emissions. Um, who cares? It's irrelevant what individuals' choices are because China's the big emitter, um, the US is the big emitter, Germany's a big emitter, Japan. So um, unless these global powers do something on a national scale, we should just do nothing. Well, what's the counter-argument to that? Yeah, so I just want to say that I have a bunch of progressive friends who basically think the exact same thing, oh, except wow. with okay. a little bit more um, self-righteous anger. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. um, it, you know, it's a really, and not to blame them, like I thought that when so I was, kind of when I was learning this. the position. Yeah, like I, I literally felt that way when I was starting out in environmental campaigning. Like yep. that was my view. Yep. Um, and I've changed my view over years of working on this. And part of it is because I think that take on how do we effectively address climate change and reduce emissions globally, it finally, fundamentally misunderstands like the system dynamics at play and specifically how do you get system change in a complex system like mm. our society. Uh, and you need typically, like if you're looking at complex systems and how you shift their outputs, Yep. Um, you're not just looking at the top top down approach no. with really large, really um, slow moving um, institutions. And we've already seen, like it's demonstrated over the last 30 years, like our political leaders are really poor at addressing this problem at the speed that's required or at the level that's required. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that we don't continue to put pressure on them. And obviously the Paris Agreement, for example, was like an incredibly important mm. um, piece of, of international law that is is helping ratchet up efforts across the world. Um, and same with corporate social responsibility. We know there are a bunch of companies that are responsible um, for a lot of the fossil fuel emissions globally. Uh, but one of the things that I don't think people understand is that like direct behavior change, um, you know, just looking at our market, like my business's addressable market, so that's 18 to 45 year olds globally who use a mobile app and care about climate change. Mm. If we address that whole market and we were really conservative about the emission reductions that those people were able to make through the product, it's about the same as reducing 5% of global emissions annually. That's, which, that's a very um, heartwarming statistic. Yeah, and to put that in perspective for people, 5% of global emissions annually is massive. It's like double the impact of the aviation industry in total, like just get rid getting rid of that. 
So like that's just the direct impacts from behavior change for a bunch of people that are interested in using this tool potentially. How do you do this without overwhelming people? Yeah. Because there's so much to do. Like I, I just think about my life and the, the changes I've made. Um, try. I'm currently obsessed with um, trying to wear um, ethically and responsibly made clothing and shoes and yeah. even that's been a lot of work. But then I look at your app and it's giving me a lot of different actions I could be doing. What's the thinking that goes behind how do you not um, overcrowd people with things and then they feel overburdened and quit yeah. the app and all that stuff? Yeah, for sure. I will answer that question but I just want to say one yeah, more thing sure. about the the kind of don't worry about personal responsibility, mm. it's a waste of time um, attitude because I, I totally get where people are coming from with it. But I think what we don't understand is that we're a really social species and our behaviours are socially contagious. We basically have eight years to significantly shift carbon emissions in the world, otherwise we're really screwed. Uh, and so we need really rapid changes across a whole slew of areas in industry but also in communities. And so I think the idea of like, oh, what changes do I make individually and why will that matter? It doesn't matter if you're just one person, but, but those behaviours are socially contagious uh, yes. and we've already seen that in Australia, like with programs like War and Waste, which had such a huge impact on people's mm. behaviour, um, just because the changes were visceral and tangible and there's obvious co-benefits associated with sustainability for each of us. Like it, it, there is a self-interest in practising sustainability beyond just the altruistic motivation for future generations. Yeah, um, and I think on what you just said, like social diffusion is a big thing as well. So like how I behave will influence those in the environment around me. So even though it might not be a big deal that I bring a keep cup, keep cup it could be a bit symbolic. Um, if a lot of other people in the space do that and sort of pick that up subconsciously or consciously in their environment, then you've got, you know, 20 or 30 or 400 people of the commons all using a keep cup. That's, yeah. that's a fairly significant change. I just think it's really important to recognise that like changing our systems so we're not massively polluting all the time. It's not a linear system. It's a no. complex system and complex systems respond to different a different set of rules in mm. terms of how you shift behavior in a complex system. And it requires a lot of grassroots changes and simultaneous solutions being set out like at the same time, um, competing with one another. Uh, and you need social contagion and you need network effects. So behavior is a really critical part of climate change mitigation. And um Setting collective goals and having teams as well is sort of a key part of making it social, which would be a big yeah. part of the behavioural um, incentives or, or payload. How do you work that into the app? Well, we're doing it now, which is really exciting. We have um, uh, Evan Hamilton, who's the director of community at Reddit, just came on as a, a formal advisor. Congratulations. So, thanks. Yeah, he's a really lovely man. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're looking now. Like it was always the intention to bring a local and community aspect into the into the tool. Like it's really important. Um, but we just didn't know when it was sort of a small scale what that would look like. And now that we have a bigger base of users um, and we've been able to do a lot of discovery, like interviewing users, checking out like which prototypes will work best. Um, yeah, I can't, I don't want to talk too much about it, but like basically like that's our focus for this whole year is like how do we build out a really awesome and compelling community and local component to the tool, which is free by the way. Um, you don't have to say too much more. You don't have to say anything you don't <laughs> want to say. No pressure. Uh, but that is exciting. Yeah. So just to go back to your last question, if you want. Sure, like, please. Um, so the question was like, how do I, it's so overwhelming. There's so many things I could be doing. And I'm, now you're looking at like ethical clothing yeah. and then, you know, what do you do really? I'm just playing the, the devil's advocate response of the person who's e easily overwhelmed and, oh, this is way too hard. I'm going to quit. Yeah, so I think like one of the things we're doing through the app is there's like a pretty hefty quiz you can go through, but you can skip it if you want when you download it. And basically it shows you like where you're at and where you need to get to to be within the UN's 2050 target to, for the whole world to reach net zero emissions. So we've sort of said, 
here's where you're at, here's where you need to get to, and here's a roadmap of tasks that you can do to get you there. Um, so we're trying to reduce the guesswork for people and just give people a finite sense of like, here's where you're starting from, here's where you need to get to. If you do these things and maintain them, then you're set. Um, yeah. And so there's, that's part of it. But first up also, like just pick the easy wins with high impact. Low-hanging fruit. Yeah. And one of those, surprisingly for us, one of the most popular programs has been green finance. Mm. Um, you know, that's we've shifted, I think, a bit over $4.5 million through users switching their bank and super fund and uh, putting their money into green finance institutions. Yeah. I think passive finance is one of the biggest dangers of our generation, really. Yeah, it's um, just you just don't realise that, again, it kind of goes back to that individual versus collective. Yeah. Like you, you're... Like my measly savings in my bank account don't really feel like they matter much, but when you're talking about the generating you know, interest for someone, yeah, and and yeah. how many people have superannuation in Australia? Like that's oh, huge yeah. amounts of money, um, and there are only a handful of of super funds in Australia that have uh, screening policies, so they're not investing in fossil fuels. It's actually really interesting to have a look at the. Um, I think the APRA just released a. Um, a list of the top 20 performing super funds and yeah. there were a couple of ethicals that were pretty high up there, ethically screened funds, and that made me quite happy. Yeah, um, they, that, they, I, I like. I think to talk about it you ha- like in depth, you have to have a financial services license. So we've been really careful about like, <laughs> like here's the here are the third party accreditations on like fund yeah. performance. Yep. Um, these these groups you can refer to, and you know um, we use we use Market Forces as a great resource for looking at. Which of the funds are are doing really well in terms What's of their investment? What's Market Forces? Is that just a general research website? It's an NGO, uh, yep. Australian based NGO that looks at um, banks and super funds and um, you know what's their performance on climate. Um, but we, you know, I would also recommend our green finance course because we kind of walk people through it. I'm um, writing Market Forces down right now because I'm embarrassed. I didn't know about it, and it's a great tip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, gonna check it out afterwards for sure. Um, so, I mean. In an app environment like that, there's there's so many choices you can make and you, you kind of neatly list them all. But I think what you've done that's clever as well is like having goals and um, makes me think about that trend towards motivating people to do individual change based on data, wearables, that whole kind of environment where I don't know whether it's a generational thing. It must be to some extent, but we're so motivated by the data that we can see in front of us. And without goals and data, it's kind of like it's harder to engage people and stuff now. Yeah, and I think that's one of the areas where it's actually very exciting when you look at the ways that we can start to integrate with tools so you really improve the quality of that data over time. Like uh, at the moment, you know, our carbon footprint model that we have in the app, um, you know, we've built it out using best practice. So it's like a combo of lifecycle analysis and input-output modeling, which is pretty standard. Um, but the capacity to then say integrate with some of our electricity retail partners to be like, okay, um, you know, we've seen your energy usage fluctuate and then we're also using this software partner that shows, um, you know, your reduction in the usage of these appliances is having this impact not just on your energy bill and your energy usage but also on your emissions. So in energy there's some really cool stuff to get really rigorous data. We're starting to see, you know, where you can integrate as well with things like smart bins. Um, so you're looking at waste, like just kilograms of waste, but that's like quite exciting um, and similarly with transport, you know, if you're bringing a phone everywhere and you want to do an integration, so you can sort of look at like your mode of transport. And so, yeah, shifting from self-reported to observed data is like quite exciting. Same with there's a bunch of like open banking tools now that look at, um, although the the carbon accounting is a little bit, still a little bit constrained, but open banking tools that allow you to kind of go, okay, what's the emissions output or the emissions factor for like every single item on this list? If I know the product category, then you can kind of 
um, reverse engineer what the emissions, associated emissions are, mm-hmm. and then make changes based on that. So, do you see it moving to a point like um, some of the stuff in the UK where you get a household number and then you can compare it to other houses in the neighbourhood, and that's a way that the government can kind of jump in and sort of say, hey, um, we see that you signed up with one small step. There are other users in the street who are signed up. This is the average saving in carbon emissions this year using using the app, or this is what your household's done as a unit. Yeah, I think we really want um, it to be community driven. So one of the things that we're looking at this year is like for there are a bunch of already like very active existing communities in real life, you know, in neighborhoods working on this stuff. So it's like how do we make the tool really useful for them and giving them access to their own data mm. um, on that, you know, with with an on- anonymity for anybody that doesn't want to opt into that system. How hard was it for you to lock down that 2050 um, 50% uh, reduction in emissions target? Is that something that you took from the SDGs or is it something that was you found independently? Um, it was looking at the UN's sort of target for net zero emissions by 2050 and then also looking at like per capita emissions and pathways to de- deep decarbonisation and how do you work out what that is on a per capita basis. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and um, what are some of the best ways that you've seen uh, users on the app uh, lock down on as features to kind of reduce their own emissions behaviour? Yeah, I mean, I'm like highly critical of the product because I'm using it every day and I like I can see where it could be in yeah. a six to 12 months versus where it is now. And I'm quite impatient about how much I want to improve. Um, but our users are typically really lovely <laughs> about it uh, and quite enthusiastic. And so I guess one of the things I know people really appreciate uh, is just the fact that we have so many courses in the app, like the, the breadth of content and depth of content is actually quite significant. Like we're covering topics from like zero waste, um, to plant-based eating, to cycling again, uh, to setting up and growing your first like herb garden. Um, I suck and at gardening. I've tried before. I need to get back on that. I'm I'm learning now, like, <laughs> and it's been really fun. I've kept like two basil plants alive like <laughs> the last eight months. And my wife always says we we should just focus on neglect plants because that's what we're best at. But you know, yeah. time to move beyond that and get get serious. They're not like they're kind of anemic looking basil plants, I must say. <laughs> like, I'm trying, but yeah, we we can just try and do so much that it you know it, it, for me it's a bit of a ball of string, isn't it? I mean, you start unraveling it, you start doing the things that you want to do that you think you can achieve. But I like what you said before about a low-hanging fruit mentality. So you start with what's simple and effective for you and then maybe you expand out. Maybe you start looking at super, maybe you start looking at power supply, maybe you start looking at some of the other factors. And and I think a really critical thing is similar to like any um, program of behaviour change, like it has to work for you. It has to be enjoyable and rewarding to you. Otherwise you're not going to stick with it. I mean that's that's true for any diet or fitness regime Mm -hmm. as well. Like... You could, you could maybe sort of sustain it for a while, but you'll usually regress to the mean uh, unless you you know you really get something out of it in a way that's intrinsically motivating. So true. Um, and like I just noticed with everything now, like the gym I go to, um, I go to Body Fit and I also um, have a Peloton at home and, you know, the, these apps and just the people, like the accountability mechanisms are extreme. If I don't go to Body Fit for like three days in a row, I get a text message from the trainer who I know quite well there. <laughs> and sure, it's templated, but it's, it's like, Hey Mike, how have you been? And where have you been? We've been expecting you. And then you go back. Yes, it's it's really interesting because yeah. people are really different. So yeah. for you that like I, might work I super really well. well to that. Whereas I'd be like, don't tell me what to do. I'm never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Originally I thought this is a bit weird, but then I thought, wow, it's working. 
I mean, yeah. I'm actually, I'd like, I'm so worried about having an awkward interaction where I have to explain why I haven't been in gym that I just go to gym. <laughs> You'd rather just, I'd rather just, just go. go to gym. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I'm glad that works. And Peloton has a thing where they, um, they say, oh, you haven't been on the Peloton in 10 days. And you think, oh, shit, I'm paying so much for this. I really should get on the Peloton. And that's, yeah. that's a different mechanism again. Yeah. Duolingo also, you know, there's like yeah. a, a wealth of like memes and jokes about the Duolingo <laughs> owl. So for people who don't know, this is like a language learning app. And they spent like, hours and hours and hours like A-B testing like the owl likes its face and how cute it could be or how sad it would be if you missed one of your language lessons and yeah there's a lot of stuff on online about people being terrified of letting down the Duolingo owl for like not doing their language training. What do you think are some of the most effective like um, incentives for your community using the app? I mean do you think it's it's a reward or do they want to sort of see badges? Do they want to be recognised? Yeah. Is it just desire to make a change that's inherent with them or is it um, fear of missing out or fear of, you know? Yeah, I mean I, I like was asking this question directly to our users through a, an interview process mm. recently at the end of last year because we're continuously trying to understand that ourselves um, to make the product more effective. Uh, and one of the things that came up was that it's not really about extrinsic rewards, at least for our current user base. It's really about the satisfaction of like, I did this thing and I know that it was impactful and it made me feel good and it was also really nice for my home. So there's just like a bunch of inbuilt benefits for them and then knowing that it has a good environmental impact, like the activity is its own reward. And I was surprised by that because, you know, I don't know, I, like that wasn't something I expected. So it's really just about making it really clear for people what the benefits of these actions are for them and how long it'll take, you know, and the cost or the savings um, and giving people that information up front, um, that, that really supports them feeling like they can take those actions. And then just the fact that they've done it and they can see it in their, in their profile is, is its own reward, surprisingly. Like I thought, you know, maybe we'd need to be sweetening the deal a little bit. <laughs> um, and, we, we, you know, we are starting to put in place incentives like we have a, a tree planting campaign we're about to launch where, you know, if you refer people we'll plant a tree for that sign up and then um, looking at like how we can how we can incentivize further action through tree planting and other types of um, initiatives that sort of double up on your impact. Um, just in terms of talking about like profile of user and also numbers, yeah. how many active users on the platform right now? Yeah, so um, we've had uh, about 35,000 downloads and we have about 5,000 monthly active users at Phew, the moment. Fantastic. So really building something big. Yeah, it's growing by about 2,000 new users a month at the moment. And how do you, I mean, it's free to use the app, so how do you fund it? So at the moment we do affiliate revenue. So what that looks like is, say, within our green finance program, um, you know, we're like, here are the super funds that don't invest in fossil fuels and here's the certification through like market forces um, assessment and then also this this other uh, group called the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. You know, they're the ones that are sort of um, vetting these groups so we can recommend them. We're also sponsored by, by Verve Super. So if you want to support us, you know, we get uh, $100 when you switch to Verve and that's great. Um, but also these funds are great. So we kind of I try to be super transparent about it um, in terms of when there's a sponsor relationship. And we also set a super high bar for the companies that we recommend. So we're not, we're not sending people to like a bamboo sunglass company, um, for example. <laughs> it's like, how is this materially supporting you to reduce your emissions? And the goal is really allow users to make an informed choice. It's, it's really amazing what you're doing. And I think that's a really clever model to start off. Um, the team's growing quite quickly, I hear, as well. Um, moderately so. Like we, we just launched into the US in December. Uh, and our focus is still honestly on product validation. Like I think that um, we're not there yet in terms of making it an amazing product. I think it has a lot of promise and we've got people who are really enthusiastic about it. Um, but 
that community and localization piece I, I talked about, I think will really make it super special uh, and something that people get a huge amount of value out of. Uh, and same with just like just how we do data visualization on your carbon footprint. Like we're looking at maybe doing like a monthly carbon budget tool rather than like an annual footprint. So there's all these kind of like just tinkering with pieces to make it easier for people. Same with the the navigation of the app and UX design. Like we're working on that as well. So it's a constant um, iteration, a bit of incrementalism at play. It's sort of like that plus just like really big feature plays based on what we're talking to users yep. about and what we think people will get a huge so amount of value a, out of. So you have a deep tie into your user community and yeah. um, you're regularly sort of feeding back to them and they they sound like they'd be a pretty engaged community by the sounds of things. Yeah, and I guess that's a nice um, litmus test for the fact that we're, we're doing relatively well in that also some of our early adopters are like obviously super interested in and passionate about sustainability um, you know, and we we have a five star rating on the app stores, and so I think like, you know, it, this is my life's work. So I think that the the integrity of what we're trying to do comes through, and so I think, and we really care about being of service to our users and maintaining their trust. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think it's been really lovely actually, um, just learning about all of the different people who use the app and all of their their lifestyles and the, the problems that they encounter and how do we address those. Yeah, well, this is like quite a ridiculous question for an app that probably has all kinds of users, but do you have a typical kind of user that has certain preferences? Yeah, we do. And attributes maybe? We do. We have sort of three. Um, one is, I guess, like I would put you in one of the categories maybe, Me? Mike. Yeah. Go on. Um, so like a carbon data enthusiast. If someone's like, we've got to have the data. Do you mean like, geek? You can just say no, geek. It's, it's that's fine. A, it's a euphemism. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I'm probably in that category also. Um, and, you know, that yeah, so there's, there's that kind of focus um, on the rigor of the accounting and the model and that's like, how people kind of come to the tool and what they care most about, yep. and they'll do the actions, but it's it's really focused on like I need to know at a at a details level that this is effective, uh, and then there's kind of a group that sees sustainability as part of health and wellness, so which it is. So it's really about like how do I improve my well being and my family's well being, and you know looking at sort of practices around slow growth or thinking about you know making my own food um, and active lifestyles and so sustainability is like an integrated part of of high well-being and then there's the sustainability hobbyists so that's also probably me people who are just like I'm really worried about this I or I really care about it and I just need to do some stuff and can you please help me that's amazing I, I love that you didn't just go with straight demographics like females and all males between the ages of xyz you've got clear um what are they called user personas almost yeah yeah, we do have demographic sort of data as well, but I feel like it's the psychographic kind of uh, profile of people is mm. really what determines whether they get value out of the tool and in the way that I just described. So we have older people using the tool and obviously um, younger people as well and definitely it skews women, but men and women are uh, you know, using the tool. Awesome. And and so from a personal perspective, yeah. like what are the biggest um, things that you've done recently to reduce your carbon footprint? Yeah. Um, well, one thing, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I think it's important to talk about it because it's a little bit like nutrition with sustainability. Like we're all on a learning curve and I didn't have good literacy around sustainability um, when I was in my 20s and I'm still building it now. So one of the things I had a guilty pleasure in was getting Deliveroo, oh, um, yeah. especially during the pandemic. Um, you know, I would just get really tired and I would be like, oh, it's so easy, even though it's ex- insanely expensive. Yeah. And you know, that's a really high emissions behavior um, when you're looking at um, just the fact that if you have someone in a single car, um, you know, driving and picking up your food and bringing it back from the restaurant and then you have, you know, whether it's uh, plastic or biodegradable, you still have all of this packaging and, you know, it's just it's just a very like high 
um, resource way to consume a single meal. Um, and I've stopped doing that recently. I've sort of stopped I, the takeaway or yeah, the completely. So, so no more takeaway or delivery. Yeah. Is it better to drive yourself to collect takeaway than it is to use a, a delivery service? Um, it really depends on like the distance of the car and the fuel economy and like how many trips are they doing. Okay, let's get specific. So Mike Davis, Elston Week, yeah. uh, ordering takeaway from Carlisle Street, which is a couple of k's away. Um, I, I've started to just drive to pick stuff up because it's cheaper. Yeah. Um, but I also wonder whether there's a big difference between me making that trip and a delivery driver making that trip. I think probably not if you're going the same distance yeah. and you have the, a similar fuel economy yeah. and like he's making the same stops um, that you would be. Uh, it's kind of much of a muchness. Yep. Um, I think the key thing though, and this is important for carbon data th- enthusiasts among you, potentially like Mike, yep. um, is it's about the, yeah, the general general <laughs> principles can really help with decision making in these yep. areas rather than trying to figure out like the exact specifics because you can just like boil your brain trying to figure it out. Um, and I think typically you want to be like reduce packaging, yep. reduce the amount that you use your car or someone else uses their car. Um, you know, reduce your energy uses or switch to renewable sources. Uh, and with your food, you want to be eating more vegetables and fruits because they have a lower emissions footprint. And that doesn't mean if you, you know, you don't have to go full vegan. I'm not full vegan. I was for a while. And then I've gone back to eating like a vegetarian with like a little bit of meat. What kind um, of meat? A kangaroo, mm-hmm. wallaby. Oh, um, that's very responsible. Yeah. It's a good, really good source of red meat mm. and um, tasty it yeah. is tasty and like almost no fat as well, which is really yeah. interesting. Yeah, so like there's the like healthiest meat. <laughs> exactly. So it's like it's it is really well integrated with like a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Um, you know, we know like with meat, it's some meat's carcinogenic. You really don't want to be eating as much as Australians typically eat. Will you would you consider like grass fed beef? Yeah, so this is a really interesting area when you look at carbon farming mm. and you know um, carbon sequestration through soil and regenerative agriculture. So that's we we want to do a course on that in the app just to give people an understanding of like not all um, you know livestock livestock farming is bad necessarily. Because um, isn't there like there's some amazing places like I think Gippsland beef is a, a carbon neutral site yeah. where they um, have a lot of grass fed cows and just imagine them being very happy and whatnot. Yeah, and then you have things like looking at the feed and using seaweed and and then that massively reduces methane emissions. So there's a lot of innovation in agriculture in that area. I think it's really important not to be pejorative where you're kind of blaming people or shaming people. Like it's really just a journey and we're all learning and like figuring out what works for you and just 4% improvement, you know, looking at what are the compound effects. Uh, I love the way you're describing this. I think you've won a lot of fans today. Oh, um, good. Because <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a bit of fear around uh, stigmatising people who just are not as good in their environmental behaviours. But yeah. uh, the way you describe it as a learning journey I think is really positive and we're all on that journey, right? Yeah, and I also think like some people can't afford to be worried about this. Like some people have other concerns that are, higher priority like their health in general or maybe they're in like some type of family crisis or they don't have enough money coming in the door and they they can't you know or even just their their mental load so like for me for example like I had to be pretty organized and recruit my partner into cooking regularly for me to stop getting takeout you know even though I'm running this this company and understand how important it is for climate change mitigation like there sometimes it's just about the systems and support you have around you. Yeah, totally. Um, and I, I think it's really important that we be looking at encouraging and supporting one another through this, um, not 
focusing on uh, like who's to blame or who's doing wrong. I think it's also we're all products of the the crazy busyness of the lifestyle yeah. we live and I think a lot of our choices are influenced by business rather than deeper principled consideration of where we want to be in a decade or two. Yeah, and it's really hard, you know. Um, my, my whole team now we've been doing a four-day work week on the basis of like you need time and space. It's a luxury but if you can get it, you know, time and space to really think about how you want to live mm. Um, is is important and, and it does support s- sort of sustainable practices. Do you want to hire me? Can I come work for you? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's send me a CV. I'll have <laughs> okay. a That's good. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Uh, companies that are doing the four-day work week thing, I think that's well ahead of its time. It's just uh, it's superb to see a couple of uh, the big guys doing it as well. Yeah, well, part of it was also the business case for it. Oh, like, yeah. You know, we could talk a lot about that. It's sort of... Uh, off topic, but you know, looking at the industrial right. revolution, like yeah. we, it's not we're not working in a factory. You talk about the Hawthorne effect and uh, the need to be supervised by an overzealous manager, and <laughs> the fact that we know that now that's not very helpful. Yeah, and so yeah, I think like for the type of work my team is doing, it's really heavy intellectual work, and so you can't just churn out eight hours five days a week and consistently and perform really well. Like it's really about how they manage their energy and how I manage mine, so that we can be as productive as possible. Last thing on my mind, and then we'll wrap. Um, I, I was just thinking a little bit about emerging emerging technologies, blockchain, crypto, yeah. and that kind of thing. And there's been a lot of talk around smart contracts and the role that blockchain might play in um, validating or verifying carbon emission reductions. Do you, do you think much about that? Or yeah, I, I looked into it when I first learned about blockchain, and I think um, like it's good if you're looking at an international carbon trading system because then you can verify it more easily like across whatever geography or whoever you're transferring the credits to. The issue is it's only as good as the input. Yep. So like if you have a carbon sequestration project and it has that issue of additionality where you're like, oh, we didn't burn down this forest, can we have some money? And you're like, well, <laughs> like that's that, but seriously, there's a bunch of offsets where that's yeah. that's considered a legitimate offset. So I yeah. think there needs to be a, a differentiation between an act or an omission. Well, drawdown of carbon from the atmosphere yeah. is, a le- I think, a legitimate offset oh, versus yeah. one where you're like avoiding emissions that may or may not otherwise have been made. Like, yeah, I just think there's a really big difference, and I don't think the current system differentiates it's effectively sort of like, between um, them. A good example might be like uh, Rio or BHP all those years ago saying, "Oh, uh, how much will you give me to not knock down this ancient Aboriginal site?" Yeah. You know, it's sort of one of those funny Oof. things where, you know, should we really be paying for, you know, entities to not be doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing anyway? It, and, the, and, the, and the worst aspect of that, although I'm, I'm a big supporter of carbon offsets, I mm. see them as a really important stopgap in some industries. Um, but the worst aspect of that is it also potentially prevents system change or changing industrial processes to, to reduce emissions directly mm. because you can offset, but if the offsets are are not legitimate and they're not reducing carbon from the atmosphere. Like you have this shifting baseline where we're still like we're still going up. Like the emissions every year, like it's way too high. Yeah, what's it called? So, is, it, is it called um there's a term for it in behavioral is it called moral licensing? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. when you, you sort of say, oh, because we'd rather not do this option, we'll just do this one, which is a little bit easier for us, and we'll get the full uh, moral benefit of making that easier choice, which yeah. is not you know as good a behaviour as the other one. The way that I understand moral licensing is, yeah. oh, I um, I went for a run today, so I'm going to have all of the chocolate chocolate cake tonight because yeah. I I deserve it, and yeah. so that that's a risk, you know, with um with pro environmental behaviour as well. You could sort of say. Oh look, you know, I switched to this electricity retailer, and you know they're offsetting all of my electricity-related emissions, mm-hmm. and that's awesome. Um, and so, you know, now I can just 
use as much energy as I want, but also I'm going to drive my car a bit more. I, I think just, um, your example is the best one, but let me try and give another one. It's like I'm going to have takeaway every night this week, but when I fly Qantas twice a year, I'm going to offset my emissions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so there, there's a risk of that. Yeah. I think really encouragingly what we've seen through um, the behaviour of our users in the app is that there's a really positive spillover effect. So we're not actually seeing that, um, at least from the interviews we're doing with users and the data we're collecting. Um, what we're seeing is that when people make changes in one area, um, that feels really good and then they start to kind of look at where else they can make changes. Um, and so we're seeing more of a positive spillover effect than than a negative. It's awesome. Look, so much to talk about. How can people connect with you and learn more about your fantastic work? Obviously, yeah. they can go and download download the One Small Step app. That would be the key thing to do. But um, in order to connect with you and learn more? Yeah, so um, definitely download the app. It's completely free to use. You can get it on the App Store, whether you're on a Google Android phone or, or iOS. You can just get it on the iTunes App Store. Um, just write in One Small Step. Uh, and then if you want to get in touch with me or with my team, like we're really keen for feedback, for input. Um, you know, we, we love talking to people who are interested in, in solving this problem as well. Um, so go to info at onesmallstepapp.com. You can email us there or just get in touch with us through the website, which is onesmallstepapp.com. Thank you so much for joining me. It's just been a great conversation. Thanks so much, Mike. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 